Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Previously on Mac Folklore Radio. AUX, Sirius Unix for the Macintosh. Unix users will enjoy the luxury of AUX, a fully featured Unix that includes complete Mac compatibility. So what happened to AUX? This is a very long article. Skip to the 17-minute mark if it gets too boring for you. AUX, The Long View, by Basil Gangster at basilgangster.macgui.com, 2010. In 1988, Apple shipped its first Unix-based operating system. It was a complete multi-user Unix kernel with preemptive multitasking and protected memory. It could run Unix and X-Windows programs like other Unix boxes, but it could also run Macintosh software. Practically all existing Macintosh programs could run in a kind of classic environment. You could also write a special kind of program that lived in the Unix environment, had Unix virtual memory and memory protection, but used the Macintosh toolbox to create its user interface. It was pretty easy for a programmer to recompile a regular Macintosh program to take advantage of this new environment. Sound a little like Mac OS X? Yes, it does. Apple shipped that as a product from 1988, version 1, through 1995, version 3. There was a lot happening at Apple and elsewhere during that time. Next Step shipped, and the famous meeting in which pink and blue cards were used to plan the future of the Mac OS was held. In 1996, Apple gave up Copeland, their homegrown multitasking, memory-protected operating system, and purchased Next, mostly for the highly regarded Unix-based Next Step. What gives? Why didn't Apple, sometime between 1989 and 1995, realized that they already had the operating system they needed for the future and that it was AUX. Why AUX? If Apple didn't develop AUX to become their modern, full-featured, but backward-compatible operating system of the future, why did they develop it in the first place? When AUX began shipping, most people thought they knew what it was for. Apple representatives at Mac user groups were quick to explain that the purpose of AUX was to gain access to the U.S. government market. The U.S. government is one of the largest computer purchasers in the world, perhaps the largest. In 1988, after about five years of work trying to get the warring factions in the Unix world to all just get along, the IEEE approved a standard set of features that should be available on all Unix systems with the goal of making them interoperable and making software more portable. This standard, called POSIX, was important to the U.S. government because they wanted to be able to buy computers from various sources, the lowest bidder, and have them all be more or less compatible. Everybody who wanted to sell computers to this very large customer was supposedly going to have to be POSIX compliant. Unix vendors thought that getting Uncle Sam to adopt POSIX was going to be a windfall for them and bad news for Microsoft and Apple. To make a non-Unix system POSIX compliant was a big job. Microsoft did it, though not until 1993 with Windows NT. The best way to make a POSIX compliant computer was to make it run Unix. Apple contracted Unisoft, a company known for porting Unix to various hardware platforms, 
to create a Macintosh port of Unix System 5 Release 2.2. Apple had to write its own Macintosh environment that would run on top of this product. It looked as though the government was going to force their hapless employees to use Unix, which was technically rich, but had a terrible user interface and no user-oriented productivity software. Unix vendors had no sense of how to design software for humans, but there was a class of computer users who didn't mind. Lots of Unix users thought that Emacs was a great word processor. Many of the rest advocated VI. Most had never even seen the kind of software that most office workers wanted to use. Apple must have thought this offered a huge opportunity. Any government worker would jump at the chance to buy a Macintosh and run things like Microsoft Word, PageMaker, and Canvas and still call it Unix. When I heard that, I certainly thought it was true, and AUX would sell a zillion Macintosh 2s to Uncle Sam. Did it work? No. Anybody else interested? Silly me. I thought that if the government adopted POSIX, government workers would actually have to use POSIX-compliant computers. In reality, I don't think anybody in government ever had to buy anything POSIX-compliant. There's always a way around government rules. You just have to fill out some standard form explaining why you should be able to use some non-standard thing. But AUX was a big hit among some Unix users, especially those that loved their Macs. At that time, I had two computers on my desk, a Sun workstation for running some scientific software that ran only on Unix, and a Macintosh for everything else. AUX meant I could reduce the number of computers on my desk by 50%. I bought it. I think it cost about $500, and that was with an academic discount from the roughly $700 list price. This was a lot of money back then. Remember, at that time, we didn't pay anything for the Macintosh system software. It came with your computer, and upgrades could be copied from your local Macintosh dealer or user group for free. The first time we had to pay was System 7.1, and I think that was about $100. But a Sun workstation cost thousands, so AUX was a bargain. I ran it on a Macintosh 2FX for several years, long after the 2FX was obsolete. I delayed switching to a Power Mac because, while they were faster in some ways, to me, they were tessucks because they couldn't run AUX. Apple never ported AUX to the PowerPC. Instead, they offered file servers running IBM's totally vanilla and intensely uninteresting Unix, AIX. In that era, nothing Apple did made any sense. Was AUX a good Unix? One of the surprising things about AUX was its reception in the Unix world. It got great reviews. Of course, the Motorola 68K family was in friendly territory, but past its prime. Sun switched to the Spark processor in 1989, around the same time Silicon Graphics started moving to MIPS. Macs running AUX couldn't keep up with high-end workstations. However, the difference in speed was not huge, and Apple's line of computers was priced for the personal computer market. A Mac with AUX was way cheaper than a Spark Station 1 from Sun. The May 1985 issue of Byte suggests systems started at $12,000 US dollars, or an Iris 4D from Silicon Graphics. 
and from a software perspective, the Macintosh was at least as good, maybe better. Macs had fast graphics subsystems by the standards of the time, and Unisoft had done a good job porting Unix. Most Unix wizards expected a lot of things to be missing on an Apple Unix box, but were surprised to find everything they liked was there. Then there was that printing thing. Apple was a respected name, a pioneer in desktop publishing and laser printing, having licensed Adobe's PostScript in 1983. Sun's first PostScript printer was an Apple laser writer with Sun's logo on it. Apple Talk had dynamic addressing and resource discovery. You just connected your printer to the network and then looked for it in the chooser, and it was there, like Rendezvous in OS X. By contrast, printing was a hassle on Unix. To solve this, Adobe created a package called Enscript that could interpret the output of the archaic Unix printer software, translate it into PostScript, and send it to a PostScript printer. Look up Enscript on the web today, and all the hits will be about the GNU knockoff that was cooked up so they could have this feature without paying for it. Apparently Linux still needs this. It shipped standard with AUX, and almost no other Unix vendor included it. And AUX supported Apple Talk, as well as the usual Unix networking stuff. Just having an AUX machine on my network meant all my Unix boxes could finally print to my PostScript printers with practically no configuration. For many years after I'd stopped using my AUX box on a daily basis, I kept it running in a closet so I could print from my Unix boxes. Unfortunately, I no longer have my wicked fast Macintosh 2FX, but I still have my AUX 3.0.1 distribution disks and a Quadra 950 handy, so I installed AUX to remind myself what it looked and worked like. Was AUX a good Mac? There are three kinds of AUX sessions, Console, X11, and Macintosh Finder. There's no reason at all to pick anything other than the Finder. Like Mac OS X and other Unix systems today, a shell session is always available by opening a terminal window. AUX was bundled with Apple's X server, MacX, which allows for rootless X11 programs. That is, X program windows coexist with your Macintosh application windows. In these ways, as in many others, AUX works just like today's Mac OS. AUX is multi-user, so you must deal with user accounts and administrator privileges. This also meant you had to log in to your Macintosh, even though you were usually the only user. These were alien concepts in the personal computer world, but in typical Macintosh style, account management was made easy with AUX's simple tools and clear instructions. Once you've logged in, your desktop looks like the regular System 7 desktop, except for one thing. There's an alias on the desktop to your home folder. There are also two icons representing AUX partitions. One is an HFS partition called Mac partition, and the other is a UFS partition, Unix file system, called forward slash. The system boots macOS from Mac partition, which also contains a double-clickable application named AUX Startup. When AUX Startup runs, it boots AUX, which mounts the Unix root partition. Although AUX doesn't use HFS for root partitions, it can still mount, read, write, and execute programs from them. The AUX Finder is basically the System 7 Finder. There were a few small differences. 
users had permission to read, write, and execute programs in their home directories, or, I mean, folders, but just about everything else was off-limits. Folders in which you did not have write permission had a pencil with a line through it in the upper left corner of the window, the same convention used by AppleShare that many Mac users were accustomed to. Folders owned by you have an extra dark line on the tab on the top of their icons. It's a real Macintosh in all the ways that matter. I never encountered a Macintosh program that didn't work in AUX. I know there were a few, but all the ones I used worked well. How did they do it? Back then, Unix programs typically occupied a 32-bit virtualized memory space. This required memory management hardware that could rapidly remap memory. Of course, this space might be sparsely mapped to physical memory. It's all virtualized by the OS and the MMU. Very little of this space would be resident in the tiny physical RAM of the machine. Few programs would use the entire 32-bit 4GB memory space to begin with, and of course, computers at that time didn't have that much memory anyhow. The Quadra 950, which runs AUX quite well, can only accommodate 256 megabytes of physical memory. Despite this, every program runs in this large addressing space. When switching between programs, the entire memory space is remapped. This provides memory protection because each program has its own completely separate virtual address space. There is no way that a program could accidentally mess up another by writing into memory that doesn't belong to it. Each program is mapped into its own space. Regular Mac software runs in the System 7 environment, which does not occupy the 32-bit memory space. A big piece of each program is resident all the time and shares its address space with all the other programs, as well as with the low-memory globals, the trap dispatch table, the system heap, and the toolbox ROM. The Mac environment is implemented by a program called StartMac. StartMac maps the lowest sixteenth of the address space, about 256 megabytes, for use by the virtual Macintosh. The Mac OS can't necessarily use all of this space. It depends on how much memory the user has allocated for the Mac environment in the memory control panel. By default, this is set to something like 16 megabytes, so System 7 thinks it's running on a Mac of that size. The rest of the address space allocated for the Mac environment goes unused. The third and most interesting kind of AUX program is a sort of hybrid, one in which the Mac environment is mapped into that first part of memory, and the rest is used in the typical fashion for a Unix program. These were called AUX toolbox programs. There is just one Mac environment mapped into every AUX toolbox program. Regular Mac software also lives in this space, so an AUX toolbox program shares its Macintosh world with all the others, just like Mac programs always do. But AUX toolbox software doesn't use the Macintosh environment for some things that regular Macintosh software does. For example, it doesn't need to have a stack in the Mac world. Its stack is in the place where AUX programs have theirs. Its code doesn't have to be in the Macintosh environment heap, either. AUX Toolbox software has two heaps, one Macintosh and one Unix, and two places to keep global variables. There are some subtleties here. For example, if you allocate space using the Unix malloc function, or its kin, that space will be in the Unix heap. 
If you allocate memory using the Macintosh new pointer call, that will go in the Macintosh heap. If you declare a global variable, it goes into the Unix data region, but your quickdraw globals will be in the Macintosh A5 world. The advantages here may be obvious, but I'll go through them. AUX toolbox processes have real Unix virtual memory. Their code and data are protected from other Unix programs. Macintosh out-of-memory conditions become a thing of the past. You still have a fixed-size Macintosh memory partition, but you hardly use this for storing any of your data. It can be very small because it only holds user interface things like menu records, window records, and so on. The really big stuff, your code and document data, are in the 4GB minus the 256MB Mac partition address space that belongs to you and you alone. If all your programs were AUX toolbox programs, you could fit a lot more of them into the Mac environment. You still have all the benefits of the Macintosh toolbox, and practically all the regular toolbox calls work perfectly. The bad news is that you still share the Mac environment with all the other AUX toolbox processes and regular Macintosh software. Your program is cooperatively multitasked with all of them. If the Mac environment crashes, it crashes all the regular System 7 programs and also all the AUX toolbox programs. The Finder crashes as well when that happens, and so you are effectively logged out and have to log back in. Not as bad as a full reboot, but all running Macintosh software is killed without saving changes. This was the thing about the Macintosh operating system we really wanted to be fixed. And the worst Macintosh program crashes happen in the toolbox calls. These always kill the Macintosh environment. There's an old chestnut. Did you know Macintosh is an acronym? Most applications crash. If not, the operating system hangs. What if? AUX made it to version 3.1 in its six-year life. The next logical step would have been to give each AUX program access to the Macintosh toolbox without having to share it with everybody else. This would have made AUX almost exactly the same thing as Carbon in Mac OS X. This is going to be an extremely long aside, and I apologize, but it's important. They couldn't have done this just by flipping a couple of switches and asking developers to recompile. Gorgonops at the 68K MLA summarized the situation very nicely. Quote, The Mea Culpa article on Folklore.org mentions some of the basic design flaws that made it difficult to bolt on real multitasking, among other things. There basically wasn't any distinction enforced between the OS and a task. They all run at the same privilege level, meaning any application could trash the entire system. The OS code isn't reentrant and the toolbox was designed to use fixed globals anchored in a single location in memory instead of giving every task its own context that could live at an arbitrary point in memory. All of these were deal-breakers for cleanly migrating to true preemptive multitasking, short of virtualizing the whole mess and preemptively multitasking the virtual containers, which would have come with pretty significant performance and memory footprint costs for the time, and wouldn't have been an option for any Mac without a memory management unit, which still existed into the 1990s. Piecemeal workarounds did make multitasking of a sort possible, first with Switcher, then MultiFinder and its descendants. But the ways they did it actually exacerbated some of the fundamental memory allocation problems 
and made it even more difficult to migrate to some other scheme without breaking existing software. The end result was some uniquely difficult-to-undo design constraints that somehow lasted almost 20 years, right up until the death of Classic. These issues were so severe that even Copeland, the much-lamented attempt at trying to fix macOS without converting completely to something new, ran existing software in a paravirtualized container, the Blue Box. In some alternate universe, Apple might have been able to fix some of these basic architectural issues earlier, so there would be, quote, less to break, but the Macintosh was in a precarious position in the market for the first few years of its life. Splitting the software base in a way that massively broke existing software on new machines or locked out users with lower-end machines would have been a pretty dangerous thing to do. End quote. They did go on to fix these things with some fairly significant cleanup. Here's Steve Jobs introducing Carbon at WWDC 1998. What does a modern OS mean? It means things like protected memory. It means things like a modern virtual memory system and preemptive multitasking and multi-threading, et cetera, et cetera. What was this Rhapsody thing? It ran old apps, i.e. Mac apps, and it would run these new apps that would give you all these great new features. The problem was, when you ran the existing Mac apps, you didn't get any of the new features. To get the new features, you had to rewrite your entire app. Nobody wanted to do this. And so we came to the conclusion that Rhapsody was great technology, but it didn't give us what we wanted. It was going in the right direction, but it didn't go far enough. Now, what do people want? They want an advanced OS that runs Mac apps, right? Is that what you want? <laughs> That's what people want. Now, we wanted to marry those two things together and not ask everybody to rewrite their apps completely to take advantage of this. How did we do that? What did we do? The Macintosh system has been being developed for 15 years or more. And there are over 8,000 APIs in the system. We went through these with a fine-tooth comb because some of them were preventing us from building in those advanced features. And what we found was, after 15 years, there was a lot of barnacles and cruft in there. About 2,000 of those APIs are bad news. We decided to have the courage to get rid of them. And we're doing exactly that in Mac OS X. We are renaming the clean 6,000 APIs, plus a few new ones we have added to allow you to implement some of the functionality we're taking away with the bad APIs. We've named that API set for Mac OS X Carbon. All life forms will be based on it. Okay. So what is supported in Carbon? Let's take a look. Here's some publishing apps. Adobe Acrobat, over 90% of the APIs are supported in Carbon. Illustrator 89, Photoshop 89, Director 6 93, you know, Freehand 92, Quark Express 88. Here's some other ones. Office 98, 87%, Internet Explorer 93, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are all mostly supported in Carbon. Let's not forget that from the first murmurs of Copeland through May 1998, Apple told everyone that modernizing your application meant rewriting it from scratch against new APIs. Nobody wanted to do this. Nobody wanted to do this.
And this was very nearly the end of the story and the Mac OS, but a smart guy named Sean Parent, formerly of Apple and Adobe, saved the day after getting yelled at a lot. Sean tells the whole story in episode 28 of the Algorithms Plus Data Structures Equals Programs podcast. You really must go and listen to the whole thing, but here is an extremely condensed excerpt. I left Apple after five years and went to Adobe end of 93. A couple years after that, Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Apple proposed this operating system called Rhapsody, uh, which was basically Next Step, and they said they were canceling traditional Mac OS. And at the time, Apple had about 2% market share and falling. Both Adobe and Microsoft had basically said, well, you know, that's very nice. Uh, we won't be supporting your new operating system. Before I had left Apple, I had worked at Apple on the transition from 68K to PowerPC. So, you know, I knew how the operating system worked. And uh, so I wrote this page and a half proposal that was known as the Cyan proposal for how you could have Mac compatibility inside of, of this Rhapsody environment. Oh, well, I was at Adobe. Adobe. I, I wrote this proposal up floated it up the management chain. Then we ended up in discussions with Apple about, okay, you want us to support your new operating system, then build this bridge. At one of the meetings with Apple, fairly senior, like director of engineering at Apple, Greg had asked, if you don't do this, why would we support your operating system? Director of engineering from Apple said, well, if you don't do this, I'm just gonna build my own Photoshop and put you guys out of business. To which Greg responded, if you really think that you could do that, I suggest you do because you'll make way more money than what you're doing right now. Uh, says, well, we looked at this proposal. It can't be built. And like that was it. They had like no slides, no presentation, no numbers, no anything. <laughs> and I got mad. And I'm like, I'm like, that's BS. Uh, he was like, nope, I've had like all the you know best senior engineers we have here look at this. They say, nope, it can't be built. I'm like, if you want to hire me back, I'll build it. <laughs> <laughs> so it went, it went really well then, the meeting. Uh... <laughs> so yeah, so the meeting went, went really, really well. Time passes, probably about a year and a half. I'm sitting in my office, you know, at Adobe, and my phone rings. Hello, is this Sean Parent? Yeah, this is Sean Parent. This is Steve Jobs. I'm like, yeah. They're like, they're like, no, this is Steve Jobs. Okay, well, hi, Steve. What can I do for you? I'm calling to personally invite you over to Apple. I've got a presentation I want to give to some of the Adobe folks. And we go over to this meeting at Apple, and Steve comes into the room, and he said, this is what I'm going to present at WWDC, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. And he goes through a set of slides for Mac OS X. And he goes, I want Adobe's commitment here and now that you guys will support OS X. I said, this is very interesting. What's the difference between this and Cyan? And he said, nothing. It's <laughs> 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 like, okay. And uh, so we said, you know, we had a conversation and we had enough people in the room. We said, we can commit to this. And he said, okay. And didn't 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 you say that when Steve unveiled this at WD, WWDC, didn't he say something like they said it <laughs> yes. couldn't be done? Yes. Which you found amusing because a year earlier it was him, <laughs> Apple, who had said it couldn't yes. be done. <laughs> yes, 
it was yes he, oh. he did use exactly those words they you know whoever they were did you catch that developers were going to have to rewrite their apps from scratch microsoft and adobe had already said no thanks which in my opinion would have meant the end of the macintosh and one of the many things that saved apple carbon almost didn't happen I'm not 100% sure I've correctly identified the person who was the director of engineering for Apple in 1997. However, if I am correct, Sean may be afraid to name names because this person quit Apple, then came back, and is still there today. Thank you for sticking with me. Now back to Basil Gangster. Maybe AUX started life as part of the U.S. government POSIX maneuver in 1988, but in 1993, that was over because Microsoft Windows NT was POSIX compliant. Why didn't Apple leadership see that AUX was the best hope for the next generation Macintosh OS? Why did they not even bother to port it to PowerPC? It's obvious from the existence of the AUX toolbox application facilities that at least some Apple engineers recognized its potential. Maybe the decision makers at Apple were just clueless. Who knows what they were thinking? Another question. If Apple had promoted AUX to Macintosh users as the wave of the future, would the user base have taken to it? The response to Carbon and Mac OS X was pretty positive. Most Mac users were excited to transition to a Unix-based operating system with all the associated benefits and still have the Macintosh interface. Mac programmers weren't very excited by Cocoa at first, but they were happy to carbonize their code bases, which turned out to be very easy. So why wouldn't have Mac users responded the same way in 1995 to an AUX version 4 with the same benefits? I sort of doubt it. For one thing, AUX could not be free or even inexpensive. It wasn't an Apple product, not 100% anyhow. It was mostly AT&T System 5 Unix. Although AT&T had not originally seen the value of Unix, by this time they had. Licensing Unix could not have been cheap for Apple, and they would have had to pay for every copy distributed. Even the porting work was done by an outside company, Unisoft, and Mac users weren't excited about multi-user features. Nobody was worried about security back then. The idea of having to log on to your own computer was not attractive. File permissions were even worse. I know Windows users who rejected NT at first, and stuck with Win95 just because they didn't want to bother with file permissions. Avi Tavanian, director of macOS 10 engineering at Apple during its comeback, speaking to the Computer History Museum. When we were doing the early versions of macOS 10, one of the differences between macOS 10 and the prior Mac OSs, 8 and 9, was that macOS 10 had inherently built into it authentication. There were users. Whereas the old Mac was just, it was your computer, right? There was no who you were or anything like that. You didn't log into it or anything. And as we were trying to figure out what Mac OS X should end up being and reconciling it with the past and not being too disruptive to users, Steve really kept pushing back on this notion that you had to log into your computer. He thought that was just wrong. You should never have to do that. It's your computer. It's on your desk. When you turn it on, it should be right there at your desktop and you're the owner. If you think about when we're having these discussions, this is 97, 98, 99, before people thought about security and computers very much, we'd have this discussion once a week for many months. And he would keep complaining, and I would keep saying, 
no, we need it, we need it. But you know, at the time, I could never really articulate a good reason why we had to have it. Because no one was talking about security. We had it because you know, we had a Unix heritage. And yeah. Unix systems had this. But deep in my bones, I felt it was the right thing to do. And after many, many months of arguing this, I said, Steve, I can't give you a really good reason why we must keep this other than I believe in my bones we must have this. And he said, okay, just make it easy to use, okay? <laughs> Which we did. And now when you, if you turn on auto login, your Mac logs in automatically. I mean, your phones have the concept of users in them, but you never see it. As time goes on, we ship the product. What happens? Windows starts getting targeted by viruses. Whereas on the Mac, when you downloaded and clicked the link that was gonna do something that required any kind of privilege, it prompted you for your username and password. And that was one of the reasons the Mac was spared so many years from getting these. Finally, there was the problem of performance. A multitasking operating system sounds great on paper, but on a sophisticated Unix system, this means your computer is going to be doing a bunch of things in the background. That means an inherent performance hit. We don't notice it now because our computers are so fast, but in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have nearly as many CPU cycles to spare. Just watch Netfreak's SE30 running AUX, link in the show notes. It's slow. Some applications, like video playback, could barely work on the most responsive systems. The performance loss from a giant Unix-like system could make them fail. System 6 was single-tasking, rarely changed contexts, or never if you wanted it that way, and was written in assembly language. It was really lean and fast. A good example of this is the Avid Video Editor. Avid founder Bill Warner had originally worked for Apollo, a prominent maker of then-popular high-end workstations with a multitasking, multi-user, Unix-like operating system. Warner had originally implemented his first-ever non-linear video editor on a very expensive Apollo system. Only months before the scheduled launch of the Avid software on the Apollo in 1988, he tried re-implementing it on a Macintosh 2. Frame rate was the most important metric, and the Apollo was doing 9 frames per second. The Macintosh went 45. And the rest, as they say, is history. Here's a very short excerpt of Bill Warner himself telling the story, courtesy of Hollywood Reinvented. We go to the SIGGRAPH show, so we show it in the Apollo booth. And what happens? These two guys from Apple show up, and they're like, you have to be on the Mac. <laughs> and I said, no. And they said, no, no, you really need to be on the Mac. This needs to be on the Mac. And I was like, come on, you know, we're on an Apollo workstation here. This is the beefy stuff. And they said, look, we'll send you a machine. You just test it. I'm like, oh, I'm busy, you know. And they said, we'll just send you a machine. Okay. So we come back from the SIGGRAPH show, and we can't get in the door to our building because there's a box of <laughs> Apple machines sitting in the way of the door. Nice. Um, so, you know, being a hardware engineer, you know, I, I'm like, I can't, I like, oh, we've got to open the box. And so I open the box and I call this guy, Michael Chow, at Apple, and I say, we don't even know what to do with these things. What do we do with it? He said, okay, I'll hook you up with a so software engineer who knows how to do this. We get this guy, George Madewell, mm -hmm. and we say, okay, George, we got to test how fast this is. Mm -hmm. How fast could you blit it even to a small piece of the screen, mm -hmm. and how many frames per second could we do that? Mm -hmm. The Apollo, we had gotten up to nine frames per second. I was like, that wasn't great, but at least you had motion. And we figured we could optimize it and we could, I was thinking, we could get to 15. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we get George to make this test on the Mac. And he does the test. And the answer is 45. Wow. I'm like, 45? Did you do the test right? Are you kidding? And he done the test right. Okay, so 45. That's the blitting from main memory to screen. The next thing is you have to feed main memory from the disk. Right. All right. We were getting about 200 kilobytes per second off of the disk on the Apollo. We were thinking, okay, we're going to have to write some new drivers and it's not fast enough. The theoretical performance of the disks was 1200k bytes per second. Mm -hmm. Eric Peters then wrote a test on the Mac, test the performance through the file system. So he calls me up and I said, what's the number? He said, it's 1,200. I said, no, that's the theoretical number, Eric. What's the actual number throughput that you tested? He said, it's 1,200. Wow. Why were you able to accomplish this on the Mac versus... Somebody from Apple, please tell me, because I've never seen anything perform at the full performance of an underlying system. But that did it. All right, they must have optimized for large uh, transfers or something, but it ran at the full speed of the underlying disk. In fact, I've never seen the underlying stuff ever run at the speeds that they say it will, wow. but, it, but it did. Wow. And that meant we had to make a decision, and quickly, because we had NAB 1989 coming up. When we, we have to make a decision today, and when we walk out this door, there is no turning back. We have to decide today that we're going to switch the Mac, and everything on the Apollo is going to stop. They're all going to be sent back. You don't necessarily know that much about the Mac, but too bad, all right? The minute we walk out this door, it's all Apple. And we sat there, we had our beers. I said, you, you ready to do it? And they said, we're ready. And we said, okay, that's it. We walked out, we called Apple, we said, we're in. That we're in. And, uh, and we said, send as many Macs as you can. So you know? Amazing. <laughs> you know? And we switched. In a time where performance was still at a premium, the original Macintosh OS, with all of its flaws, could do things a modern multitasking operating system could not do. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories or join the very quiet Discord server for this podcast at www.macfolkloreradio.com. And we have some practices that I think are, are certainly best of class in terms of how users have to relate with that operating system. I remember when we were designing OS X, uh, Avi Tavanian, the, the person that was running software at the time, showed us OS X. And every time you wanted to uh, load an application into OS X, whether it was off the internet or, or even off a disk, you had to type in your, your name and password. You had to authenticate. And we gave him incredible shit for that. You know, we said, Avi, are you nuts? This is the Mac. And he said, trust me. And, and you know, so we deferred to Avi in the end on that after trying to twist his arm for a year. And boy, was he ahead of his time. Just that simple thing. And there's like a hundred things like that in OS X. People have told me that he would often reject ideas, but if you were forceful and stuck with your idea, he would ultimately adopt things that, you know, he would internalize them and become his ideas at a certain point. Absolutely true. <laughs> and, not, I mean, not always, but, yeah. but it was possible. And the strategy was to get him to adopt your idea. Yeah. Right, because then he would go out and sell it. Okay, well, hi, Steve. What can I do for you? He goes through a set of slides for Mac OS X. I said, this is very interesting. What's the difference between this and Cyan? And he said, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
Okay.